So excited you're here. We are going to be, uh, well, actually, with all these frogs, I was, I was really, really like thinking, let's just call an audible and go over to Exodus chapter 8 and preach the second plague. The frogs be so apropos. Is that the right word? But let's not. Um, so we're, going to, we're going through uh, this right here. This is called the journey. If you don't have one, walk back there to the table and get one. Uh, it's just a Bible reading plan. Um, and it's just, you know, empty pages. That's all it is, empty pages. And you can see it tells you what we're doing. Um, you, you're reading four different texts per, per day. Uh, we're reading the Bible together. And as we're reading the Bible together as a church, each, uh, each month we pick one of the books that you're reading and we preach through that. So we've done Psalms, we've done Romans, we're doing Mark right now. Um, so we want to invite you. We even did, I mean, y'all missed it out if you weren't here, Exodus Leviticus. So like if you're, you're dying for a sermon on Leviticus, you can run back to the podcast and grab that. Um, but anyway, uh, grab this and you can use it every six days. There's a blank page for sermon notes. So beside your Bible, all you need is this right here. Run back there and grab them. You can walk while I'm talking. It's no big deal. Um, anyway, so I said we're going to be in the book of Mark today, the book of Mark, and I'm pumped. Uh, l- let me say this. I know it's raining outside and it's still like, it's like two weeks later after Easter, but, but the resurrection still happened, right? The tomb's still empty. Still really good news. It's kind of a dreary day, but it's not because it's the Lord's day and we should be overly pumped, not kind of like need my coffee, what's going on, uh, but excited because the tomb is still empty. All right, Mark chapter six. I'm for some reason, I think the coffee's kicking in. I've had like eight cups or something and I'm like way more like twitchy than normal. So uh, you can go ahead and open up to uh, Mark chapter six. I'm really pumped about this particular text we're going to be looking at. Outside of the resurrection, it's probably the most talked about miracle ever. It's in all four gospels, the feeding of the 5,000. Likely you've heard plenty about it um, in your life. If you've ever been around or even not even been around church, you've heard about the feeding of the 5,000. Uh, so I'm going to pray and ask that the Lord would, would do something in all of our hearts. And perhaps if you've heard you know, way too many sermons on the feeding of the 5,000 that the Lord would do something in our hearts to, that's new, something that we haven't heard before, something that we would say, oh, that's a good insight from the text. Not that I bring it, but that the Lord would bring it and it would cause us to want to live differently, live more for him, etc. So uh, I'm going to pray and then we'll jump in. We're going to Mark chapter 6, starting at verse 30, Mark 6, 30. By the way, if you don't have a Bible, just look underneath you and there's one of those blue white ones or black, and just keep it. It's yours to keep. Um, you know, take it and give it away to somebody if you have one, but those are for y'all to take. We get those um, to give away. So let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would come now in power. You, you are here already in spirit by your, by your Holy Spirit, but we pray that you would still come and teach us. I, I confess my absolute utter need for you, that there's no way that I could stand and preach a sermon about anything unless you're here, not just for my own heart and mind and, and soul to be able to say things clearly, but for everyone's heart here to be able to hear it and receive it. And so we're all desperate for your presence that you would come. I pray for uh, everything I'll say, Lord, that it will be useful and helpful and true. Anything that's not, just let me pass over it and not say it. And I pray for, uh, I pray for us all as we hear a familiar story as we see just the unyielding, overflowing, gracious compassion you have for people, just remarkable love for people, that we would be struck by it. 
not just in our own lives, but that we would also be shaped by it as we want to be Christ-like to other people, just like you are. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, if you were here like three years ago when we were preaching through Matthew, we covered this uh, text in the, in the Matthean text, and now we're looking at the Markan text, Mark. So um, as I said, all four gospel writers actually talk about this, and they all kind of take different angles, if you will. So like in, in the book of John, whenever he is preaching the feeding of the 5,000, 5, right after that, and kind of, I've said this plenty of times, like the way that the writers write their books, the order that they tell the stories are all intentional. They're all intentional. A lot of times they're the same, Matthew, Mark, Luke. But the way they lay out the stories and the themes that they're trying to bring out, they're all intentional to help us see. So as John writes, and he does the the feeding of the 5,000, right after that he says that he's the bread of life. And so he's wanting everybody to see, just like Moses fed his people with spiritual food, with with, with real food, manna, Jesus says, I'm the truer and greater Moses, and I feed my people with spiritual food, and I give them eternal life. This little feeding of the 5,000 is a microcosm of what I'm going to do forever. That's, that's the kind of the, the feeding of the 5,000 in the book of John. And Matthew, he's contrasting two stories where you've got John the Baptist, uh, who's just been beheaded in Herod's palace, and he throws a feast, and then he puts the feeding of the 5,000 right after that. And so in the first feast, you have an egomaniac, a ruler in his palace, a king that is going to feed people with a feast after rampant immorality and lewdness and drunkenness has just happened and which ends with an illegal homicide contrasting with the massive feast that Jesus the other king the real king is going to as a gentle compassionate preacher living out in the being out in the desert with his disciples is going to bring healing to the sick going to teach people the word and going to feed them which is a small another microcosm of the one day heavenly uh, supper that we're all going to receive as believers in heaven one day Mark who's always moving quickly, always trying to help us see quickly that Jesus is building the kingdom. He's starting the kingdom. The kingdom's expanding. The kingdom's being built. In Mark's version, he's wanting us to see Jesus's mission of love, his mission of love and compassion unfolding, the kingdom coming, and that Jesus' life is one of love and service to people, which is what we're going to be looking at. So um, if you were here three years ago and you were with us on the feeding of the 5,000, think of this as like, you know, you you plugged in your phone and then you got an update. This is the 2.0, 3.0, whatever version. Um, This is vastly different because we're taking it at a, not vastly, but different because we're taking it at a different angle. Um, So we're going to be at Mark chapter 6, verse 30 through 44. I'm going to read it, and then we'll, we'll come back through. And as we look at it, there's four things I want you to see regarding, as the Mark inversion, Jesus' mission of compassion and service. Jesus' mission of compassion and service. I picked that, that service because obviously Jesus is the servant of God who's come to save us. But also just as a, a, a double play, you know, when you go to a restaurant, they serve you, and, they, da, 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 and Jesus is giving them food. Anyway, may, you'll see how it works. Uh, Mark chapter 6. I'm doing my best to try to do as many puns as possible about that. Um, <laughs> Mark 6.30. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. We can stop. By the way, Mark chapter 6, verse 7. Jesus sends out the apostles, and they go do it to end of verse 13. They're coming back from that, and that's why they're coming back, and they're saying, Hey, you sent us, and this is what happened. Verse 31. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. <clears throat> now many of them saw, now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran their own foot all the towns and got there ahead of them. When they went ashore, 
he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. 35. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place and the hour is now late. Send them away to go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. And he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii that is like day's wage? 200 days wages worth of bread and give them to eat. And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, five and two fish. And he commanded them all to sit down in groups in the green grass. And they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and blessed them and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up, the t- and they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. And as you probably heard many times, 5,000 men plus their wives, plus their children. If the chamber's famous, like 25,000 people. Um, so lots of people, uh, probably 15,000 people there. So lots and lots of people there. Um, so what we're going to do now is we're going to look at this text and we're, as Mark is wanting us to see, Jesus's mission is one of compassion and service. So there's four notes I want you to see regarding Jesus's mission of compassion and service, which for us will start at verse 33. But if you'll notice, I started reading at verse 30. So I'm going to have a brief excursus uh, in verses 30 through 31. That's just like side note, um, special way to say side note for the fancy. Um, I learned it in schooling. So anyway, uh, in 30 through 32, we're going to do a brief little excursus and then come back at 33 and we'll see the four notes of Jesus's compassion uh, and mission of service. So 30 through 33, this is, this is important for us all. 30, it says, the apostles returned to Jesus and told everything. So they were sent out on mission. They come back after mission and they're saying, hey, this is what we learned. Let's review some of the things that we learned. Let's, let's realize what works. Let's realize what doesn't work. Let's, let's talk about what happened. And then we're going to have some learning from that. And then after that, Jesus sees an, an important need, which all of us need to, to see. This is what he says. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place. Here it is. And rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. So Christ sees the need. After a period of ministry, he sees the absolute need for people to have rest and leisure. So Christ is not anti-leisure. Christ is not anti-rest. He is for it. It's kind of the principle of the Sabbath, that we need to have rest. We need to have leisure. Um, but it needs to be... Uh, it needs to have some parameters on it. So before we get into the four things, there's, there's five little things I want to say regarding rest and leisure. Um, this is actually from Danny Aiken's commentary. I thought it was really helpful. He has five little quick things. Now, it's funny because if you know Danny Aiken at all, he's the president of Southeastern. He's just so in your face, right? Um, and so it's funny that the first of these five principles has nothing to do with rest. Uh, he says, Christians must work hard. Laziness has no place in the Christian life. So like the, the point he's trying to make, obviously, is um, rest is after work. So when we're doing our work like them... You're supposed to work hard. You're supposed to work as hard as you possibly can. Christians work hard, not lazily. Uh, and so the first thing he wants us to know is that we have to work hard. But after that, he says we must rest. Second thing, being a workaholic is not spiritual and actually can be sinful. Being a workaholic can be sinful. 
Um, third thing he says is rest is both with solitude and with companionship. You notice that even in, in Christ's life. Sometimes when he rests, he retreats in solitude by himself. We saw that last week. And here he's, re- he's uh, retreating and resting with companions. So in your own lives, you need to have rest from ministry. Hopefully you're doing ministry and you're working hard and you're finding yourself actively engaged in ministry as much as you can. But you also need to temper that with rest both by yourself in solitude and also with companions. Third thing, rest is for a specific period of time. It's not permanent. It's not like continual, unending, perpetuating rest. That's, all, that's my life. I, I believe in Sabbath, like, so I'm just going to always rest. But it needs to have a period of ending to go back over to the labor. And lastly, and this is maybe the most important because it's exactly what happens for the disciples. Aiken says, but even when resting, be prepared for ministry. A devoted follower of Jesus is never really off duty. And that's what happens to the disciples. Jesus wants to say, time for rest, time for leisure. You just got off ministry. Let's get in the boat. Let's you know, go over across to the other side. That's where we're going to the desolate place. Not anybody around. Your cell phones won't work. There's no service. Like We're going to get over there and just rest. Notice what happens. It says in verse 33, many of them saw him going and recognized him. In other words, um, the people are on this side of the lake and they see him get in the boat and they know it's on the other side and they're like, okay. And then like they chariots of fire all the way across or maybe it's called, I forget the new one now. They run all the way over and they get over to the other side and then they're pulling up and like, we're right here. So like, like the people literally run all the way to the other side and so they don't get it. It says, now many, verse 33, now many saw them going and recognized them and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. And it says, and when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd. So Rest time doesn't even happen. The rest was the boat ride. However long that was, hope it was restful and you're not seasick. So the rest that they got is uh, the boat ride. And as they get to the other side, people are already waiting on them. Now, um, if you're like me and I'm like totally expecting rest time and I don't get it. And as a matter of fact, when I get to the other side, like they're waiting on me. In my sinful, selfish heart, I'm like, are you kidding me? What are you doing? Just go home. I just did a bunch of stuff for you. Like, like I'm automatically like put out, right? Oh, give me some time. I can't go anywhere. Like, so I would think that that would be my reaction if we're honest. But look, watch what happens right here. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, which he had just left. I know you're going to say, yeah, but he's Jesus. No, listen, like watch what happens. And he had compassion on them. Now, these particular people had just been ministered to. They ran all the way around to get more ministry. If you look at the very last sentence in verse 34, after he has compassion, he says, and he began to teach them many things. So what he does here is a ministry of the word for them. And just just notice with me the eagerness of the people to have the word of God to them. They just got it. They ran all the way around the lake and they want more. More word, more word. Forget meals. I'm ready to forsake a meal if it means I can get more word. I mean, just automatically, are we thinking in, that, in those kind of ways? Like, are we so excited about the word? Are we eager to keep hearing the word of God that we're willing to forsake meals to be able to have more word? You say, yeah, but that's Jesus teaching. And no one, like, I, there's no podcast on iTunes where I can get Jesus teaching. So yeah, if it was Jesus, I would have this excitement. But, but seriously, Jesus' words are right here. This carries the same weight as Jesus preaching, and maybe even more, because this is actually the written down word of God. And so how eager are you 
to be in the word like these people. So back to the actual point. When he sees the great crowd, it says he has compassion on them. He's not annoyed that his rest time is interrupted. He sees the great crowds and he has compassion on them. So their problems or their annoyances that we would think, not to him, that's my word, uh, are not annoyances. Their problems are not problems. He's not annoyed by it. So here's the first thing I want you to see about Jesus' compassionate nature or Jesus' mission of compassion and service. The first thing is Jesus is the compassionate server that does not grow tired or weary or annoyed of you having problems. Now, here's what happens, at least for me. I've got problems going on. I continually keep telling somebody and I just build up in my head all I ever do when I see this person is just kind of talk about my problems. And so in my head, I'm thinking, they're annoyed by me always talking about myself and my problems. And I kind of transfer that on them. And I just perceive, maybe wrongly, that they just always kind of like, they got to be annoyed by me always talking about my problems. And then I take that and I think, well, then everybody would feel that way. And so even as I seem to be, I mean, all the time I go to God, I'm just like, problems, God, problems, God, problems. And I just think to myself, I transfer to him. You've always got to be so annoyed with me. I mean, my life's such a wreck and all I do is have problems. And you can easily start thinking, man, Jesus has got to just be so like frustrated with me all the time. But this verse is exactly how he feels. He looks at you and he feels compassion. He's never annoyed with you at having problems. He never grows weary at you continually bringing the things that are real that are going on in your heart. He continually looks at you, even though he's, in this particular story, not getting the rest he was thinking, or because he's God, he does not rest. Like he, Every one of you can bring all of your problems every day until you die, and you will not overwhelm him and everybody in the world. He's not ever annoyed, ever, by you coming to him continually and saying, Jesus, I need you. Jesus, I need you. 1 Peter 5, 7, cast all of our anxieties on him because he cares for you. He cares for you. He has compassion on you. So it's literally like cast all of your anxieties on him. And I just got a whole nother day's worth. And you just keep throwing him up. Throwing, you keep throwing your, your anxieties on him. Sorry, that was weird. Because um, he never, ever grows weary or tired of you. He had compassion on them. He had compassion on them. You're never going to go to Christ and find a big do not disturb sign hanging. It's always going to be, come in and tell me more. Come in and tell me more. I'm your savior. I'm your king. I care about you. It says that he, was, he had compassion on them. This is the Greek word sympathia. We get our word sympathetic from that. It means um, his whole being was stirred to its lowest depths. That's what he felt. And that's what he feels about us. His whole being is stirred. Cast our anxieties on because he cares for you. His whole being is stirred. Spurgeon says, they came unasked, uninvited. Yet, he received them tenderly. He blessed them graciously. And he at length fed them bountifully. When you come to Christ over and over and over, what you will receive from him is tenderness. What you will receive from him is graciousness. What you will receive from him over and over and over and over is overflowing love. Overflowing love. This is the posture of Christ towards us. He has compassion. 
Why did he have compassion? It says it right there afterwards. He saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them. And it says, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. This isn't just some random first century illustration that Mark's trying to grab to, to help us understand what's going on. Sheep shepherd illustration, the sheep shepherd analogy is something that pervades the entire Bible. And he's wanting us to see something greater that's going on. So the first thing, the first thing is that Jesus is the compassionate server that does not grow tired of you having problems. The second thing is Jesus is the compassionate server that meets your greatest need, your greatest problem, sin. Now, when I say that, I'm not minimizing point number one. All other problems besides sin are irrelevant. Don't bring them to Jesus. That's, that's not the case at all. Jesus is comp- he's intimately desirous and involved in your everyday problems. However, he's also deeply concerned about your greatest problem, which is sin. And here's the greatest deal. If you're in Christ, that one's already taken care of. That's what's awesome. So let's look at why I say the greatest need. Because Mark uses this illustration, sheep shepherd. And as I said, that is pervasive throughout the entire Bible. And I think what Mark is trying to say is point us to our greatest need. Here's why. Jesus is the Lord who is my shepherd. I shall not want Psalm 23. I'm I'm showing the sheep shepherd analogy throughout the entire Bible and what it seems to be pointing out to us. Jesus is the rejoicing shepherd of Luke 15 who goes out after his one lost sheep. The parable of the sheep. He's got 100 and 99 are here. One's gone. What does he do? Ah, I got 99. No. He goes after the one. That's us who are sinners. Jesus is the good shepherd of John 10 who lays down his life for his sheep. There's sheep that need to be in this fold. The way that they can be in this fold is I need to go and lay down my life for them and die for them so that they can by faith trust in me and trust in what I've done on the cross. And then they can be of this fold. They can be Christians. Jesus is the chief shepherd of 1 Peter 5 who honors his servants. Jesus is the great shepherd of Hebrews 13 who sheds his blood for the eternal covenant. That's the gospel, by the way. Jesus is the shepherd lamb of Revelation 7 who guides us into springs of living water. That's life eternal. That's the promise of the gospel. So this sheep shepherd analogy that Mark's pointing us to is this, is that Jesus is a compassionate server that meets our greatest need. So what Mark is wanting us to see here is that Mark is that Jesus is totally gospel-centered in his mission. That he is the great shepherd who goes and gives his life for his sheep so that they can, by faith, trust in him and his work on the cross, his death on the the cross, and then come into the fold, be with him forever, and live with him forever in springs of eternal life. So the second point is, uh, for us, the good news of the gospel. Never get tired of bringing your problems to him. That's the first one. The second one is our greatest problem that's ever happened to us, which is sin, has been taken care of us by our our great shepherd. So Jesus is the one that gave his life for us on the cross to meet our greatest need. And he is the compassionate rescuer that saves. Now, we're in a story of feeding 5,000 people. And what I want you to do here is um, relate to the, the narrative 
the things in the story that are trying to explain the place to us so that we can see that spiritual implication. He brings people out into what's known as a desolate place. There's nothing there. The hour's growing late. They have no food to eat. They will certainly die unless he does some sort of miracle and feeds them the food they need in order for them to be given life still because they're in this desolate place. And this is spiritually the exact same condition of us all. We're in a desolate place spiritually. We have no hope of life and we need a miracle of Christ to come, namely his, not just his cross, but also the resurrection. And by that, that gives us our spiritual food so that if we believe we can trust in him and we can receive everlasting life and we can be fed and we will have life given to us. And so he is the great shepherd that does that for us. He meets our greatest need, which is sin. So if I'm going to take those two and I'm going to put them together in any kind of application, I want you to realize, yes, in your day-to-day life, you're going to have, you're going to have problems. Your spouse drives you crazy. You want a spouse to drive you crazy. Um, your neighbor's insane. Your parents, you, can't, you haven't talked to your sibling for four years. I mean, there's all kinds of problems, serious problems, real serious problems. And I'm saying, take those things to Jesus every day. Never, ever stop. But all the while remembering and rejoicing that the greatest problem you'll ever had, you you ever will have, has already been taken care of by his death, burial, and resurrection. And so because of that, that being taken care of, you can absolutely trust him in all these other things. He's taking care of the most important thing. Now, if we keep going in the story, this is where it gets pretty interesting. Um, He had compassion on them because they were uh, like sheep without a shepherd. And what does he do? It says he began to teach them many things. And so he knows that the teaching of the word is what they need the most. Um, He gives them what I said is talks to them about their greatest need, which is physical, I mean, which is spiritual. But then after that, there comes a time where the physical needs come. And it's interestingly enough, the disciples that pointed out. It's not Jesus. It's the disciples. Verse 35. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place and the hour is now late. Jesus like, thanks. I created days and I know that. I, I, like I was here whenever I made this. No, he didn't say that. He's, he's compassionate. He's like, send them away. And the disciples are like, we need to send these people away into the surrounding countryside and villages so they can go buy themselves something to eat. They got to hit the Hebrew hut or the Hebrew bell before it closes. Maybe it's open to 2 a.m., but probably not. Um, and we, they need to get themselves something to eat. So the disciples are clearly like in some ways, feeling compassion for the people about their physical needs. Hey, it's getting late. We need to feed them, or they need to be fed. We don't need to feed them. Jesus is the one that says that. So verse 37, Jesus looks at them. After, I mean, you can just imagine here, 15,000 people, and they're getting concerned. Maybe it's just that they're hungry, and they're like, you know, I'm hungry. So uh, Jesus, they're hungry, and they need to go eat, and I do too. Um, maybe it's that. Worst case scenario, the Bible didn't say that, but maybe it's that. Uh, and Jesus looks at them and just, just picture it. Like, don't know what happens. We all know what happens. You know, Andrew takes the kids' food and they feed them. But like, it's over here. And, and he looks at him. and he's like, yeah, you give him something to eat. They're like, dude, you brought me over in a boat. I didn't bring anything. I thought this was like rest and leisure. 
What do you mean give them something to eat? There's 15,000 people here, Jesus. So he looks at them and he gives them what seemingly is a, a command to do the absolute impossible. But more than anything, I think that what we can say is Jesus, this is the third one. Jesus is the compassionate server that cares about physical needs, your physical needs. Now, here's why I say that. The disciples have some level of care about the people's physical needs being met, their hunger. But the extent by which they're willing to meet that physical need is let's send them away and tell them to go buy something. Now, I understand that that's probably the only thing in their simple kind of temporal minds, we'd probably say the same thing. That, that what else could we do, right? They weren't expecting what's about to follow. So the extent that which they can think of is they're hungry. Uh, let's send them away. We've got to send them away so they can take care of themselves and get something to eat. Versus Jesus look at them and saying, you do something about it. So if I'm just going to take that one little story and lift it up out of the narrative and just say, all right, let's talk about ourselves for a second and the extent by which we have compassion on people and how far does that go when we help people? Is the extent like scenario A or scenario, the first part where the disciples see a need and they tell them, hey, you need to go do something about that. <laughs> like you see somebody, hey, you need to go get a job or hey, you need to cut your grass or hey, you need to take care of yourself or hey, this is the need that I see in your life I want to let you know what it is, and then now you go get that job done now, buddy. Or is it the second half where Christ looks at him and says, good job seeing that. You do something about it. I am scenario A to my detriment all the time. Real good at spotting people's names, right? Real good at spotting problems. Um, Christy at least tells me that. But... Uh, but that should not be the extent by which my, my help should go. Jesus cares about our physical needs. He wants them, hey, you feed them. So Jesus clearly cares about physical needs. He tells us in Matthew 6, um, if I'm going to take care of birds and flowers, certainly I'm going to take care of you. In Matthew 25, at the very end, he says, uh, people will ask me, when did I feed you? When did I give you clothes? When did I visit you in prison? Those are physical needs. And you'll, whatever you did to the least of these, you did to me. So it's clear that Jesus is concerned about physical needs. Therefore, since he is, and even in this story, you feed them. We should be. We should be concerned. So as we're supposed to be concerned, since Jesus is a compassionate server that cares about physical needs and literally does something, you should as well. And to what extent do you do that? As multiple, and if you're, it's just the honest truth. Like if we are far more uh, mindful of it and looking for it, you'll see a whole lot more chances. And to what extent do you do something about it? The reason why is number three leads us into number two in people's lives. The more you meet physical needs in people's lives over and over and over you have built for yourselves opportunities as you meet their problems to tell them about their greatest problem, which is their, need, their, sin, their sin problem and their need for Christ. Now, 
You're not doing it just to do that. You're, you're making real friends. You're not just like got this back door like, I'm giving you some food for the gospel. Boom, got you. Like, it's not like you're trying to scare them or trying to backdoor them or whatever, right? It's because you care. You're making real friendships with people. But the truth is, people are far more susceptible to listening to gospel presentations when physical needs are met. If they're hungry and you're telling them the gospel, you know what they want? This isn't a trick question. You know what they want? Food, exactly. Then they eat and then they listen. This is, this is the, the ongoing, it's, it's crazy. It's the ongoing strategy in most global missions. Let's meet physical needs. And as we do that, we'll share the gospel with them when chances arise. And I'm going to make a real friend with them. I'm going to become a real friend with them. And however long it takes, I'm going to do it. So as Jesus is the compassionate server that cares about meeting physical needs, how about you? The picture here is that there's scores of people, famished, hungry, desolate, dead, so to speak. They want to hear the word, and Jesus gives it to them, and he tells them, you give them something to eat. Now, the fourth one is the one I think that's maybe the best. Uh, the, if, you, if you say it this way, point number three is you give them something to eat. That's the them, like if you're, saying, if you're going to put some emphasis on it. They need their physical needs met. Point four is you give them something to eat. And four, point four is my favorite. So this had to completely baffle the disciples. Um, he puts the responsibility on them to do the feeding. He says, you give them something to eat. So let's, let's, let's stop and ask this question. Why would Jesus tell the disciples or ask the disciples to do something he knows they can't do? I mean, if you're just putting yourself in the real story, hey, you who have no food in your hands, <laughs> feed 15,000 people right now. I mean, Jesus, we've seen some stuff. and He hadn't fed the 4,000 yet. We've seen some stuff. And even when he does feed the 4,000, like, how are we going to feed these people? But anyway, um, th they have no concept of this happening, right? How are we, what? So let's, let's rehearse what's going on. Here's, here's the impossible miracle that he's asked them. Jesus is in a desolate place. I mean, he's, he's warning us to know. There's no food there. <laughs> They're in this desolate place that there's nothing. There's no resources. There's nothing there. Next, uh, it says in verse 37, shall we go and buy 200 denarii? So it's 200 days wage. It's an expensive task, to say the least, to feed 12,000 people. That hasn't changed. Um, we, we even know later on that they, they have five loaves. If you look at John, it's barley loaves. One commentator says that apparently it's even a miracle in itself to make barley loaves, which are as poor quality to actually taste good. Um, so like that's another impossible task. And it's evening, so it's, it's late. It's not like, oh, yeah, we got all day to make a plan. It's the end. And he looks at them and he says, hey, do this impossible task. Why does he do that? I think this is exactly why. Here's the answer. If you don't write down anything and you're not even a writer-downer, like, Write this down. Um, God will sometimes ask us to do the impossible to remind us and to show us that he alone does the impossible. God sometimes asks us to do the impossible, not because you're going to do it, but to remind you and show you that he alone does the impossible. 
John 15, 5 says it much more succinctly than I do. Apart from me, apart from me you can do nothing. Go feed 15,000 people. Okay. I can't do that. I don't know how to do that. And the point is, is to walk back where you're like, I can't do that. And he's like, exactly. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And he wants us to cling so closely to him that when he asks us to do impossible things, and how many times does he ask you to do impossible things? I would say probably a lot. Whether you've done them is a whole separate thing. But the point is, he wants you to realize, depend on me. Don't try to do it in your own strength. It's impossible for you, but not impossible for me. Depend on me. A lot of times we think we can do things on our own. James Boyce says, we tend to think that we can do at least something and that at worst, all we really need is just the specialized help from Jesus. Luther says, our nothing is really nothing and not a little something. <laughs> like we need to realize Apart from him, we can do nothing. And he wants you to get to the point of realizing, okay, I can do nothing. And so he tells them, go do something impossible. And immediately what happens? You give them something to eat. I mean, this is, this is classic you and me. How are we going to pay for it? You, immediately, I can't do that because... Go do something awesome for God. Yeah, but Jesus, I mean, this is exactly what they're doing. Shall we go by? Where am I going to find 12,000, Jesus? Is it underneath the rock over here, like in Matthew 13, 44? You know, where is it? Where's the, the treasure hidden in the field, Jesus, to pay for it? Uh, obviously, they didn't say that, right? But like immediately when, and, and we all have this kind of defense mechanism, right? Go do something awesome for Jesus. Oh, how am I going to do that? Here's a list of five, at least right now, at the top of my head, reasons why I can't go do that, God. Let's not be that way. Let's not be that way. Listen, in the end, how does it happen? Andrew, I was told not to say beat up a little boy. So Andrew did not beat up a little boy. In the first service, I said Andrew beat up a little boy and took his food. So I, was, I guess I ended up saying it anyway. But in, in John <laughs> chapter 6, verse 9, this is what happens. He did not beat up the boy. Um, Clearly, he was told to go find something. And in John chapter 6, verse 9, we know what happens. Um, if I can find it. Here we go. Um, I guess in verse 8. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they for us? But what are they for so many? And Jesus said, Have the people sit down and blah, blah, blah. So we, we see, so we, we see here... Um, are we supposed to go buy all the bread? Excuse, excuse, Jesus. And, and I'm at, back over in Mark 6, 38. He said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And so Andrew finds, you know, who, one mother thought it out and packed a little lunch for, you know, the little fella. And he's got some sardines and, or whatever. And he's like, this is what I got. And so he brings it back. Now, here's the thing. This is, I mean, Jesus, I can't do it. Jesus, I can't do it. I can't speak. I've got no gifts. I can't do this. I can't do that. Do the impossible. Here's all the reasons why. Don't miss this little, this little thing. Tiny little bit of something was brought to him. And if, we, if, if you said, okay, Jesus, I'm going to feed the 12,000 with this, like we all would say, well, that's not going to happen. So what happened was something insignificant and small was brought, but that tiny little thing did, did the thing, right? It, it fed the 5,000 people. That's exactly what's the case for you. You may think you have like the most insignificant gifts or no gifts. 
your gifts equivocate to the five loaves and the two sardines. Like, this is what I'm good at. It seemingly is nothing. And Jesus says, okay, the, the thing about this story is the disciples brought that to the right person. They brought it to the king. So you bring what you perceive as your measly set of abilities and gifts to the king and watch what he multiplies. Watch what he does in order to feed the multitudes, to reach the people around you, to carry on his mission. Sure, we might be some of the most ungifted people, but we bring those gifts to the king and that's all he needs. He's going to reach people through you and me. That's what the great thing is. Here's where I get to, this is why I think it's, this is the best part. They brought it to the king. Spurgeon says it this way. Oh, he's so good with words. Um, he says, I have often felt, basically he's saying, I've often felt like I've had nothing, but every time I know I have nothing, I bring it to Jesus, and I, it's like I'm overflowing with stuff that I thought I had. This is what he said. I've often felt like I neither had fish nor loaf, nor loaf, yet for some 40 years and more, I have been a full-handed waiter at the king's great banquet. You keep bringing what's miserable, what you think is piddly, what you think are no gifts, and you will be a full-handed waiter of gifts at the king's banquet table and serving people. It's just so good. This is where, this is where it gets awesome. <clears throat> see how many loaves you have going. See, when they had found out, they said five and two fish, um, and he commanded them all to sit down in groups in the green grass, sit down in hundreds and fifties. I have no idea why. Um, it's just super organized. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, this is where, this is pretty cool. He looked up to heaven and he, and he said a blessing and broke the loaves. Let's stop right here. Now, literally, the feeding of the 12,000 could have happened anyway. Could have happened anyway, right? He used to drop bread from, from, the, from the skies back in the Old Testament. He could have just Old Testament, boom, drop it. You know, just throwing it up and all of a sudden it just rained down them all, right? That would have been a whole lot faster. You know, everybody's like just catching it. That would be quite a scene. So he doesn't do that. He doesn't just, you know... Amen, and then they wake up, and they're like, or they open their eyes, and they're like, oh, food in my hands, awesome. Like, instead, what seems to be the long way to hand it out is the way that he does it. And I think that's the best part. Look what it says. And taking five loaves and two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves. And look what he does, look what he does. Gave them to the disciples to set before the people. Jesus was not the one that handed off the bread. He just gave it to the disciples and let them be the hands that actually handed the blessing to the people. That's point four about this great mission that Jesus has called us to is this. Jesus is the compassion that I added gracious just because he is. Gracious server that allows us to join him on his mission. He could have handed out the blessing anyway. I mean, he could reach the nations in any way. It's not like when he tells us in Matthew 28, go reach the nations, or Acts 1-8, go reach the nations, and it's like, hey, get over here and help, because I'm going to do it. And if, if you don't do it, I'm fretting, and I don't have, know how, like, Jesus is going to reach the nations. It's going to happen. And he's bringing us in that we get to have the joy of being the people that actually take the gospel and hand it to them and say, Trust in Christ. Believe in Jesus. He died for you. So like, this is the best news there is, is that he allows us to join him on us. It's not some kind of forced effort. And he's like, oh, if you don't do it, I don't know how it's going to happen. It's going to happen. 
But the great news is that he doesn't let you just sit on the sideline. As a matter of fact, he doesn't force you in the game. He invites you in the game. And we just should be overwhelmed with joy and saying, yes. I mean, how many professional athletes want to sit the bench? That's re- how, how many athletes want to sit the bench? I don't know of anybody. Who wants to ride the pine? Nobody. Put me in the game. This is exactly the, the feeling we all are invited into. We're invited into getting to be the ones that get to hold the bread and hand them out. The graciousness of God that he gives us the, the bread to go and be the hands that serve the people so that they can meet Jesus. The disciples get to be the ones that distribute the blessings to the people. He could have done it any other way, but he gave them the task, helped them see they couldn't do it, did the miracle, put the miracle back in their hands, and let them be the um, distributors of the blessings to the people. Glory to that. That's awesome. Let, let, let's think of it this way. Um, now, I'm going to say something in first service, just stared at me blankly, and they have no idea. I'm going for it here, and I think maybe this will work. We'll see. Whenever I was a kid, I used to, go to, used to go to restaurants, and every time I would go, the waitress would come up and say, hey, my name is Flo, I'll be your waitress today, or whatever, you know, some, whatever her name was. Hey, my name's Flo, and I'll be your waitress today. Um, but around the turn of the century, something happened. The, the language changed. If you haven't noticed, I notice weird things, but it's just me. Now, I never hear, hey, my name's Flo, I'll be your waiter, waitress, whatever. It's always, hey, my name is Flo, or hey, my name is Suave, and I'll be taking care of you today. Is it, anybody notice this? Have you notice this? I don't know if it's like PC or they've done a test and you just get more tip money that way, but it's always like, I was, be taking care of me. What does that mean? Um, I always thought it's just an interesting way to say it. Now, this subtle shift in vernacular that's happened maybe over the last 15 years, maybe it's accidental. I don't think so. I think it's actually more biblical. I don't think that Outback and Applebee's said, let's be more biblical and change our language. They think, let's get more tips. But this little shift is actually a more biblical way to talk about it. And it shapes, I think, the exact way that we should do ministry. What are you talking about, Fudd? You're way out there in left field. Let me try to bring it back. This is what I mean. Instead of being like the waiter, hey, I'm Flo. I'll take care of you. You want some straws? I'll forget them. Here's your water. And I'll just kind of stand on the side passively. And that's why they're a waitress. Wait on you to instruct me what you need next. Instead, we're supposed to actively, boldly take care of them. Oh, I see the need. I'm going to come over here and do something. I'm not going to passively stand on the sidelines and just wait for you to instruct me. But instead, because I'm invited into getting to be the distributor of the blessings, I'm active. I'm bold. I'm taking care of things. I'm jumping in. Feet first, hands first, everything. I want to be a part of. We get the privilege of taking care of people by giving them the gospel, by carrying on the mission of Jesus. And I think that this is remarkable. This is how the disciples did it in Mark 6, 7. This is how we're sent out in Matthew 28 and uh, Acts 1, 8 or all the other sending texts. We're sent out to be the distributors of the blessings of the gospel called into this lovingly not begrudgingly but like yes I mean because he could do it anyway like in the text he could do it anyway he could have just said sit on the side and watch this and they stand there like oh yeah okay you fed him then 
But he says, you give them something to eat. So what's the result? What's the result of this amazing miracle? Verse 41, he looked up to heaven, said a blessing, broke the bread, gave them to the disciples to set before the people. So good. And he divided the two fish among them all. Result, 42. Let's just think about the result in verse 42. Of course, it's talking about physical stomachs. But let it just pervade into the spiritual truths. They all ate. Everyone there ate. And were satisfied. So they didn't get, you know, like, feed 12,000 people, everybody gets a Lord's Supper, you know. Hope, hope this holds me over. It's not like they got some little small thing, right? Everybody ate, and not only did they ate, they were satisfied. They were filled. Filled. And this is where it gets even awesome. Verse 43. For all of us excuse makers, verse 43 is your, your, your go-to verse. You know, where are we going to buy all the food, Jesus? Verse 43. And they took up, you ever wonder why it's 12? They took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces. So when it's all done, everybody's satisfied and every disciple standing there holding a basket. Overflowed with. So that's where, hey, excuse makers, look what you, all of you have right now is a full basket in your hand. Don't, don't think that it's not going to happen. I ask you to do something impossible and I'm, <laughs> I intentionally had 12 baskets full left over. I don't know where the baskets came from. So that every single one of you are like, holding that saying oh he's overflowing he took my piddly little gifts did it and there's still like a whole bunch left verse 43 is for all of us who think it's never going to happen for the disciples so what's the result filled abundantly filled satisfaction joy and the truth that kind of comes out of this is this you will never be be able to exhaust God of all of his provisions you'll never be able to exhaust God and all you're asking because he is indescribable he is inexpressible beyond words overwhelmingly indefinable overflowing with everything not just that you need in your life that's the whole point of number one but what everybody else needs, and you're an active participant in being his hands and feet to them. He never runs out of resources. It's literally infinity resources. And verse 44, and those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. So in this story, Jesus shows his love, shows his compassion, shows that he's the server, shows that he's the rescuer by coming to this desolate place and feeding the 5,000 plus, the 15,000. And in the same way, it's a microcosm of the greater story, which is that Jesus shows his love, his compassion, his service, his rescue by going to the lonely place at the cross of Calvary and dying for us and being the rescuer. And so because of that, Spurgeon gives this plea to us all. Come then, weary, hungry sinner. You have nothing to do but to take Christ. Open your mouth and receive the food. Faith to receive what Christ provides is all that is needed. This story is saying, come and all that's required is faith. Believe. Believe in Christ. 
and what he's done. So this next section in the service, if you will, is a time of worship. It's a time of reflection. And I just want you to think about this. Where in those four do you need to think, pray, confess, grow? Do you feel like anytime you come to God, you're just like, oh God, I'm sorry I'm asking this again. I can't believe I'm annoying you with another one of my problems. Stop that. Let's get rid of that mindset. Perhaps you're not a believer in Christ and you've never ever considered that the greatest need that you have is your sin problem and Christ has already met that and you need to trust in Christ and put your faith in him and what he's done. Be baptized and live a life joining him in the mission. Perhaps it's you don't do a great job at meeting people's physical needs. You're good at saying, hey, you need to get better at that. Go get better at that. Instead of coming alongside and saying, let me help you get better. Or maybe it's the last one. The joining of the task just seems like another thing God's asking me to do. Right? Instead of like, he's inviting me into being a part of the greatest story, the greatest task ever. And maybe we need to think and pray and reflect on that. Whatever. However the Lord's leading you. Just think and pray and reflect. Confess. Feel the compassionate nature of Jesus in forgiveness. And then stand, worship, hear, and then go and worship in your life, joining his mission. Let's pray. Christ, you're so good to us. You're so good to us. So often, I feel like I'm just bringing you five little barley loaves and two sardines. That's my life. That's all I have to offer. A lot of times, I don't even feel like it's worth it because there's so there's like so many people that are so much more gifted, can do such better things. And why would you want to bother with me and use me? You just use that other guy. He's so good. Or the other girl. She's so awesome. But the truth is, Lord, you take our small gifts and because we bring them to you, the king, you can multiply those to feed the thousands, to reach the thousands. And I pray that we would never forget that. Forget that. Be with us not all right now as we grapple with that truth. That we wouldn't be like the disciples making excuses. Yeah, but Jesus, yeah, but I can't move. I can't do that. I can't afford that. That'll never happen. Don't let it be like them. But instead, because of your greatness and your graciousness, you put the bread back in our hands and allow us to go and be the distributors of the blessing. I pray, Lord, that that would bring us amazing joy. Be with us now as we worship. Be with us now as we pray. Be with us now as we confess. And God, I pray that we would leave here ready to join your mission. I pray this in Jesus' name.